0: This is Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll, stories about addiction, recovery, and moving forward with life. I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Amy. And we would like to let you know, we do have a website if you're not familiar with it. It's loverecoveryrr.com. Therein you'll see all of our episodes as well as blog posts and other information and resources that you may find useful in your recovery journey or your loved one's recovery journey. So check it out, loverecoveryrr.com. So we're so pleased to have Heidi here today. Heidi has a powerful story about perseverance and positivity from her childhood dealing with traumas and early addiction and also dealing with criminal your own criminal history you had how many felonies in your past 12 originally and i got down to eight and moving forward to recovery and now getting some recovery through life start village at the family support center and now the director of life start village yes i am so we're so excited for you to share your journey and tell us how you got to where you
2: are. Thank you so much, thanks for having me.
0: Start us off, let's let's go back a little bit and then just start your story and let's roll.
2: So my mom and dad got married when they were, my mom was 14 and my dad was 16 and she was pregnant with my brother. They lived a good life, my mom said. Then when I was about three years old, my dad got electrocuted. He was building houses in St. George and Rocky Mountain Power left their main electricity lines on. And so when he went to the site that day, he was working on putting siding up, and he got electrocuted, and it killed him instantly. And my grandparents knew something was wrong with the, the site, that something shady was done. My grandpa had it investigated, and we ended up suing many different agencies for my dad getting killed that day. So for the three years after he died was pure chaos, just different court hearings, Uh, my grandpa investigating everything that was going on, and we ended up winning that lawsuit. Me and my brother got a large sum of money, and my grandpa was in charge of it. And so when we turned 18 years old, we both got part of the trust fund, and then we got the rest of it when we were 25. After he died, my mom got very hardcore into drugs. She started with cocaine. I believe she started that to cope with his death. She had a lot of childhood trauma herself, and that's how she chose to handle it. Um, Her parents were alcoholics, and that was the norm for her. On my dad's side, there was nothing like that. My grandparents were very, very supportive of us. My grandpa always had a rough relationship with my mom. He thought he didn't think highly of her, let's say that. So my mom got into drugs really hard, and after my dad died, my brother went to live with my grandparents, and then my mom had two other children by a different man, and he took custody of them, and I stayed with my mom. Through her addiction, we ended up moving in with my sister's dad, and he was very, very abusive towards me, mentally, physically, the works. And he was also very physically abusive towards my mom. My mom did see a lot of stuff that was happening to me, but she, I guess she chose to overlook it because she was in her addiction, just recently, she told me and apologized to me about everything that she put me through. And it took eight years to get that from her, but it it came. At the age of 10, my mom started making methamphetamine with her boyfriend in our house. She was always addicted to something, but the meth was different because with it came money. We finally had money for once. We could go shopping. Um, we had nicer things, but also with What came with that is my mom was gone and she always would pay me off to go do something or to stay busy or, hey, I'll go take you shopping if you can just go play with your friends or it was always revolved around pushing me away. I remember I spent two years of my childhood talking to a door half the time. And then finally, I ended up trying the drug. I was 11 years old and it was always laying around my house. There was cookie sheets full of just meth on the tables and I wanted to know what this drug was what was so powerful about it what made everybody sell all their things to my mom what made them think of her like she was a rock star in a way and so I tried it the first time I ever tried it was with myself and then I believe my mom did know I was using it and we started using together. Was she concerned about using or did
1: she just think that was okay? it
2: was cool. My mom didn't know how to express emotions, let's say that. She always treated me like her friend. She wanted me to mm-hmm. like her. She she always wanted me to think she was cool in a way. I don't think she really knew how to be a mom because she got married at 14. There's only so much you can really know about what a mom is. So we were friends, and I always looked a lot older than other kids. I matured really, really fast. And so we would just became friends. Like she'd take me to Wendover with her. We'd go shopping. We'd go to different friends' house. It was just the normal thing. So I started using. And the next thing you know, I'm dropped out of school. Seventh or eighth grade. Maybe even way before that. I wasn't actually getting any credits. But I was going to school. That was just the way of life. Um, My mom ended up going to prison when I was 13 and she got manufacturing distributing meth charges that was her third one and she ended up going to prison in Las Vegas for federal crimes because with that addiction came credit card fraud check fraud she was addicted to money anything she would go to the store and steal stuff with thousands of dollars in her pocket it was just the thrill of it and I seen how easy it was for her so I just Followed in her footsteps, it seemed the normal thing to do. What happened to you when she was in prison? Who did you stay with? So, for my dad dying, I got social security, and my grandparents. In my belief, my grandparents always favored my brother. Um, they took him in. They didn't ever ask if I wanted to come in with them. Um, they went after my dad died. That was their world as my brother. And so my grandpa helped me get an apartment. I was 14. Wow. Yep. I lived right in West Valley on 40th, 40th South and 40th West. As a 14 year old. Yep. And they made sure I was always take care of them. They'd make sure I had food, make sure I was doing things. I had a car, but then I picked up on the side, just selling drugs because that's the people that were in my life. I didn't have friends Those were my friends, thirty-five year old women. That's what I knew as friendship. I didn't know I had friends that I went to school with, but I lived this other life. This like I wanted to keep everything a secret and ended up hanging out with women twice my age. (laughs) That was my
1: friends. That's rough. Being abandoned, 14, trying to have the responsibilities of an adulthood, having a car, which technically you couldn't legally shouldn't be driving because you're supposed to be 16 years of age in Utah. But having that thrown on you and then was your primary job then selling drugs? Did you is that how you
2: earn money? And then from the trust fund? Basically, I mean, I was used to shopping, living this lifestyle. As long as everything looked good on the outside, nobody would know what was going on on the inside. And that pretend normal, I lived for a very long time.
0: How long did that go on, that you were living alone in an apartment?
2: For two years. My mom got out of prison when I was, the first time she got out of prison, I was, I want to say about 17. And she got out and I got my trust fund. Actual, when I turned 18, I got a set of money and I ended up getting her an apartment, paying all this stuff for her because I wanted her to... To have something and she ended up going back to prison. She ended up distributing meth and identity theft again and she went back and I did not communicate with her for about four years while she was in prison. I didn't write her. I didn't... nothing but I just went on my own kicker. I stopped selling drugs but then I started doing cocaine with my friends and partying and just got into a whole other lifestyle. I was hanging out with dope dealers and gang members. Met my children's father. And that was the life. That was... I had no no cares.
0: Were you still getting money from the trust fund during that time?
2: I blew $60,000 in less than two years on drugs. Easily. Plus the money I was making from selling drugs and all the tickets i racked up the tickets from just stupid stuff i believed like i'd get pulled over for speeding and i believed if i didn't go to court or open the mail that it didn't exist that it would go away
1: so and the consequence of that is they just keep building
2: up and then (laughs) they take your license for six years (laughs) don't they get put warrants out over time as well yeah they took and then i'd go to jail and ask someone to bail me out and came back and repeat the cycle over and over again. But it was for minor stuff. I never got in trouble for the drug portion of it until I was 23. So what happened at 23? So I had my daughter when I was 22 with my kids as dad and he wasn't a good person. I knew that, but we were friends. We smoked pot together all the time. I would run him around. I thought he was cool because he was the dope man. I thought I was lucky to have him and then I ended up getting pregnant with my daughter and as much as I want to say that would change my perspective or change my life it didn't I was scared to death my mom just got out of prison right when I was getting ready to have her and for the first time in my life I seen her sober That I could remember. She got out of prison. She looked like a completely different person. She was calling me just to ask me how my day was. That probably felt nice. It was weird. (laughs) Um, But it did. It felt nice. I seen that person that she could be. And I was amazed because she wanted to know how the baby was. She was there when I gave birth. Um, She had that immediate bond with my daughter that I didn't have. Um, As much as I wanted to say, like, I just quit using. I didn't. Um, I started to get into pain pills about six months into my pregnancy. I had back problems and I just started taking them. And at first they made me sick, but then they they made me feel good. Um, I took them all through pregnancy. I was getting them from my doctor. I justified it. Of course, I was getting more than just what my doctor prescribed, but I ended up having my daughter. I had a good pregnancy with her. Everything's just went good. When my daughter was about three months old, I started using meth again with my mom. She had relapsed. And I went to her house one time, and it was just sitting there. And I don't know exactly why I did it, but I did, ended up using it again. And it went really, really bad really quick. I ended up getting pregnant with my son about a year and a half after I had my daughter. And I was using When I was pregnant with him and then I gave birth to him and three months later I had picked up my first rack of felonies for, I think I picked up five of felonies for identity theft and credit card fraud. My mom sent me to the store to cash a check, which I knew you don't ever cash a check that my mom gives me. Um, But I wanted the money. I wanted to get high. I went to a bank and cashed the check and right then I got arrested with my son in my hands. Oh gosh! Um, first time I had ever been to jail, and I had six felonies. And they're like, "Just tell us where you got the check, we'll let you go." And I could not just—I couldn't tell on my mom.
1: Why? What? What made you feel like you didn't want to be honest and, and give her up? Because I was taught as a young age, you don't do that. I oh, you just—you don't rat
2: out your friends and family. My mom. <laughs> my mom. The cops came around a lot when I was young. My mom told us, you don't say nothing to the cops. Ah. Nothing good's going to come out of it. I even remember younger, like DCFS knocking at the door and she'd pee clean for him and then they'd be gone. It wasn't even her urine. (laughs) (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. When you were arrested at the bank with your child, what did they do with the child at that point?
2: They gave me the opportunity to call someone to pick him up. And I had a friend that lived down the street that used to babysit me as a child. And she came and got him, and I went to jail. And I remember the scariest thing about being in jail that night is because I didn't want to detox off of pain pills. It wasn't that I caught the charges. It wasn't anything else around me, not how my kids were. I was so scared to detox off of the pain pills that I wanted. I would do anything to get out of jail. And since I had never been to jail... And I had a current address. They did OR me on my own recognizance and let me out. And then I was like, okay, well, it's just going to be gone. And six months later, I had all these warrants out for my arrest. um, And I just avoided them and avoided them. And then when my son was, I want to say nine months old, 10 months old, I was selling drugs because that's where I go to immediately because I don't, I can't justify spending all my money on drugs when I can sell them and get high for free. That was my mentality. I was careless. I'm not sure exactly what happened that day. Um, I know I was smoking with some friends in the room. And I remember coming out to check on him because he was taking a nap. And I pick him up out of his crib. But before that, he was crawling around the house. He had just started crawling. And I pick him up out of his crib. And he's he's like got foam stuff coming out of his mouth and just not okay. And I'm like, everybody needs to leave. And I call the ambulance and I have the ambulance come there and I'm calling my mom. I'm like, I think you gotta hold a meth. I think you gotta hold a meth. She's like, I'll be right there, I'll be right there. And um they took him up to primary children's and I was waiting for my mom to get there because I didn't have a car. And she got there and we smoked before we went up to the hospital. And I got up there and he was a whole nother another kid. He was he couldn't stop moving he was just wired. And I knew right then that that's what happened. I didn't say anything to the doctors until after they kept coming in. They're like, we don't know what's wrong with him. He should, this should wear off. Maybe he's have allergic reaction. And I'm like, please test him for meth. And they're like, why? I'm like, cause I just moved into this house and they could have smoked meth in the house before. I was, I could not be honest about it. And they kept me they're like well we need to keep him he needs to stay and i ended up staying with the at the hospital for four days with him and i didn't leave at all but i was still getting high in the bathroom there it didn't make sense like I, it has nothing to do with me loving my kid why i could not you, k- stop getting high there i justified it my brain told me that what i was doing was okay because i was still there with my son
1: as and that's as- the power of addiction right mm-hmm. is it mm-hmm. does make you think something wrong is right and you know there's that drive to to maintain that high
2: i didn't i've really now looking at it and saying it i was like i think how did i not know but in that moment i remember like everything told me i was doing the right thing because i loved my kids had nothing to do with with me loving them and as long as i was there so i'd have people come up to the hospital to bring me my dope or but i'd act like they were visiting my kid um, he stayed there for four days, and I remember going downstairs to get some food to eat, and it was like eleven fifteen, And I come back upstairs, and he's out. He's gone out of the room. And I just started freaking out, panicking. Where's my kid? Where's my kid? And DCFS had came and removed him. Um, and then I got a phone call from my little sister where my daughter was staying. And she said the cops just left her house, and they took Karis. That's my daughter's name. And I remember just dropping to the ground like... My whole life was, for the first time, I felt something that was so uncomfortable and so unreal that I just dropped and I couldn't breathe for a minute. And I was freaking out about the staff. And I remember driving home that night and just like, what just happened? What just happened to my kids? And my sisters are screaming at me. But my mom was like, we're going to get them back. So we start washing the walls when I get home with bleach, in case they came to the house to test it, trying to cover our tracks. And the lady calls me and she's like, "You need to go test for us." And I told her, "I'm like, well, I'm going to come up dirty for marijuana, when marijuana wasn't the least thing in my system." Um, I didn't end up going to test. Uh, I ended up telling her that I had a problem, but I was gonna, I was gonna stop using. And so she took my kids to the Christmas box house, and they stayed up there for three days until my younger sister could get cleared to pick them up. The state then gave custody to my sister um, of my two kids, and I had to go through the court processes, and I went to court, and I remember my kid's dad being there. And he sold drugs, but he never did those drugs. He smoked pot, but he never did the, the meth or the cocaine he did drink with it. But I was I used those substances and I thought nobody would know when it came to my personal life besides my mom. And when he would find it around the house, I'd be like, It's my mom's, knowing that it was mine, thinking that nobody would know. Um, he's seen me at court that day, and I remember him whispering in my ear, he's like, You're lucky my son didn't die. He's like 'cause I'd fucking mm-hmm. fucking kill you. <laughs> And I just remember shivering because he was very abusive. And I believed that I deserved that because I wasn't making the right choices. So we go to court that day and they told me I needed to go to treatment. They said I needed to get an assessment, that you need to go do all this stuff. And I was so in shock about still that everything that was going on, I was still getting using. It didn't seem real. I don't even remember everything they told me to do. I just agreed to it because they had control. And I remember leaving court that day and my sister came and dropped my kids back off to me when she was not supposed to do that, but she couldn't handle them. So for the f- next four months, my kids lived with me and I continued to use. And when DCFS would come check on the kids, my sister would just come pick them up for a little bit, do the check and then drop them back off. So I believe in that time I forgot what I was fighting for. Um, It took me six months to get into treatment, and they were going to relinquish my rights. But I couldn't tell them. like I have my kids already. So I finally ended up going to the uh, Women's and Children's Detox Center through VOA. And I remember getting there, and I was scared to death. I remember using in the parking lot. I remember bringing in pills with me so I could do my own detox, because I wasn't scared to detox off of meth. That was nothing. It was always the pain pills that had the more control over me. Because the physical withdrawal from it is horrible. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. And that scared, the, scared me so bad. So I'd bring pills in with me. I remember thinking like, I'm going to do my own detox. And within the first night, they're all gone. So they ended up putting me on methadone and I ended up going to House of Hope after two weeks of being there. I was in House of Hope for I'd two months before they brought my kids in with me. I did residential with my kids for nine months. I did family dependency drug court. I remember the whole time I was there. I didn't want to be there. I don't remember anyone asking me if I wanted my kids. I don't remember anyone asking me if I wanted help or if I wanted to stop using. Everyone just said, that's what you have to do. So I didn't want to be the person that lost their kids to the state. So I did everything I needed to do. Got sober. Um, continued working on my life. I think I was faking there a lot. I'm telling them what they wanted to hear so I could get through it. I got out and I relapsed within. The first six months, I went back into the same environment that I was left with my family, with my mom. And while I was in treatment, everyone told me that in order for me to stay sober is is that I can't have a relationship with my mom. So that's what I did. I pretended like I wasn't going to have a relationship with her. When knowing my dad already passed away, I have no support. I don't have any real friends. It wasn't realistic for me. But I did... I just told people what they needed to hear so I could get out. Um, I got out, went back to the same situation and ended up getting high. But that situation taught me. I go back to it because I do believe I had to go through it. Um, how I ended up relapsing is I was at home one night and I had a really bad toothache. The whole side of my face was abscessed. My face was swollen up. The pain was unbearable. And I remember calling my mom and I'm like, I'm, balling my eyes out, saying I'm in so much pain. And she's like, oh, well, I have a Lord Hub." And as soon as she said that, the pain went away. And she brought it to me. And by the next day, I couldn't go to bed unless I had some more for the next day. But I remember my thought process through that was, I played the tape through it. Like, I can remember the exact moment that everything switched and I realized that I'm an addict. Like, I, just knowing that that was on its way, Took away all my pain that I felt. And immediately, before it even hit my body, I was already high. So, realizing that now is like, that's how much power something like that has over me. And so, I ended up going back out for two years, dragging my kids through the dirt. We were homeless, living in hotel after hotel. I was selling drugs just to make us make it another night. I caught 10 more felonies. Um what were the felonies for? Drugs. Um Dr- was I it started distribution and Yep, I started making fake prescriptions. Oh wow. That that would s- <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> One of my felonies were we were I got hooked up with somebody that was making IDs. Oh, okay. And first so, up this is how the drug brain works is I made a fake ID with my own name on it. <laughs> that was fake because I didn't want to go down to the DMV. And I ended up um, getting arrested for shoplifting. And they found my ID with my name on it. And they're like, this is fake. Here's a felony for making your own ID. <laughs> the guy, I remember the cop just laughing and making fun of me. He's like, that is like the stupidest criminal. <laughs> I don't know. That's just kind of how your brain works when you're... And I definitely got into shoplifting really bad when we were homeless because I wanted... me. I justified taking care of my kids with it. And then it becomes such an addiction and then such a high that it doesn't matter if you have money or not. I remember walking into Kohl's and walking out with up to eight to 10 pairs of shoes with just walk out the door without paying for them and I'd get away with it. So then I'd go back and be like, what else can I get? I'm going to try something more. And I did a lot of damage. Um, I got arrested there a few times after so many times of stilling you get felonies for it. So there was a couple of felonies there. Um definitely check fraud. Identity theft, some more um the manufacturing of prescriptions. I went to a pharmacy to pick up some pills of on a prescription I made and I could tell when I walked in the door, don't do it, don't do it. But I wanted that so bad, that high I went even against my better judgment and I go up there and I could see the pharmacist looking at me all weird. I'm like, I know he knows. I just could not go with it. Next thing you know, I can see someone blocking the back door, just that uncomfortable feeling. So I take off running and I now for the first time I'm out there running from the cops on my feet. I'm not a runner. Um, Did they catch up with you? They sure did (laughs) and made fun of me some more. He's like, you really think you can outrun me? I'm like, no, I just wanted to get away. <laughs> but I laugh at it now, but but in the moment it was so serious. And I ended up going to jail for a while then. Something that I've noticed about my booking photos is I have 12 booking photos for two years. And the first booking photo, I'm crying my eyes out. And then the more they go on, you see me start to smile. Because you just, mm-hmm. you know the drill, you know it to it expect. Yep. And I felt a sense of relief by being there. Like I... Because you can't control stuff in there. And I was so worried all the time about how I was going to get high next or how I was going to find a room for us to sleep in. or. And at yeah. least at jail, you've got a bed. You've got three mm-hmm. meals a day. And my kids were taken care of. Where were your kids when you were in jail? My sister she's, or my oh. mom. With my mom's addiction, this is the thing is, I want to say she's a functioning addict. It's, how, it's crazy that I've made it sound, she's always made it work. Because along with her addiction, she's addicted to men. Mm. And so she was. she's never alone. So she always has a house. She always got a car because they'll buy it for her. She's always pretty stable when it comes to that. She's not the homeless addict that you're going to see on the street. She's not going to be down at the block chasing drugs. She dates men with money. And most of those men don't even have an addiction till after they meet her
1: oh wow so she that's that's what she brings to the relationship is it is oh that's
2: and sad. that's what it's been my whole life and I don't when I remember going to treatment the first time and I was so mad at her because I'm like you'd get high too if you had my mom I remember sitting in a group saying that and never owning my own stuff with it like everything was blamed on my childhood my environment I never took accountability even the day I left there the first time so I ended up going back out really hard, catching all those charges. I could not stay out of jail if it killed me. They knew me by name. Um, the last time as I ended up getting arrested, I used to sell drugs in Kearns. That was where I also went to school when I was growing up. Um, I had gotten the car. My mom picked me up from the corner, and my, she had my daughter with me. And I remember us driving up the street, and j got behind us. And they're saying through their inner comments we're driving down the street, Heidi Lund. Step out of the vehicle.
1: Oh, they so they
2: knew They knew who I was. Um and my heart just dropped. And I remember when they got me out of the car, a meth pipe fell off my lap and busted in the street. And my daughter crying her eyes out. Um I remember going to jail that night and I ended up staying in there for six months. And then they ended up I got ankle monitor to one of the dope man's houses. He put in for me, out of all the people, um, he put in for me, and I ended up going on an ankle monitor to his house. And I stayed sober for a long time, almost a month. And I was on work crew. I was working at the dump. Talk about a very humbling experience.
1: (laughs) The smell alone has got to be brutal. So why did the
2: dope man vouch for you? Because I was his connection. Oh, okay. He was the dope man for me to get pills. I was the meth woman, the my meth message, woman. <laughs> um, for him to get his supply. So I had connections. I used my looks to get where I needed to go, get better deals for men. The one thing I didn't do is sleep with people because I had so much trauma from seeing my mom in different relationships that I never took it to that level. And I could not understand why until I did some treatment and realized that was some of my trauma. But I did use them and make them think that I was going to. So when he vouched for me, I got out and I was going to the dump every day and trying to raise my kids, but I still started selling drugs because I needed money. And I had found a pill in one of my pockets for my clothes back before I went to jail, and I, I sniffed pain pills. That was my, my thing when I did pills, and I smoked meth but I crushed it up and I sniffed half of it. And it was the first time in my life I was able to stop myself in the middle of doing drugs. And I sat up and I'm like, what am I doing? Like you're going to get caught. I I stopped and I remember wiping it off the counter. And that was the first time and the last time I've ever used drugs. I was able to stop and I knew what I was doing and I wanted something more, but I didn't know how to get it because that's all my lifestyle. I knew was that and, Four days later, I got UA'd on the work crew through the jail. And usually I could get pain pills out of my system within a couple days. So when they UA'd me off that half a pill and being sober before that, I tested dirty and I was in absolute shock. But I do believe it was a God thing. I think it was my moment. I think it's what I needed. Because before that, I remember calling House of Hope all the time, like, hey, I need help. I need to get back in there. I'm like, we're homeless. DCFS is going to get back in my life if I do not do something. I could feel it coming. Um, And she's like, okay, come down here where we'll set up an intake. And then I'd go back to jail. I would get caught shoplifting again and go back to jail. I just could not stay out of jail. (laughs) I ended up getting arrested when they tested me um, because I had a dirty UA. I ended up getting on lockdown in jail for 30 days. And you can't talk to anyone. You can't have letters. You can't have visitors. I missed my daughter's birthday all kinds of things. One day, one morning I woke up and they're like, hey, Miss Lund, you need to roll up. And I was like, where am I going? House of Hope was there to pick me up. I remember walking into House of Hope's doors and I'd never been so happy to be somewhere. And people were asking me, why are you so happy to be in rehab? Like you're, you're smiling and when you're at House of Hope, you have to sit at the top of the stairs to wait for that UA to get in the door. So everybody knows if someone's sitting at the top of the stairs, Like, they're the new one. They're coming back in. And some of the staff would pass me and they'd be like, what are you doing back here? And or some of them, some of the girls would be like, why are you smiling? I'm like, because I'm so happy to be here because I wanted it so bad. I just didn't know how to get it. And I knew when I sit in jail, I'm like, I'm going to do everything different. I don't want my daughter sitting in rehab when she's older. Talking about how her mom fucked up her life. And... I took that passion, the passion with me the whole time I was at House of Hope. I was there for six months. And I remember following all the rules. I'm like, there's probably a reason why they've got all these rules. And then they told me I couldn't smoke cigarettes. And oh, wow. Like, oh, we're breaking this rule.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> usually they do let you smoke cigarettes in rehab.
2: So they... they Not obviously... no more. <laughs> oh, interesting.
0: Not all of them.
2: Okay. So when Medicaid made, when I went to house hope the first time you was, you were allowed to smoke and I'm like, okay, I can smoke cigarettes. I can get through this. The second time um, Medicaid passed an act where they did not want to fund treatment centers. If they were going to allow smoking, if they can pay for cigarettes, they should pay for their treatment was the motto. Interesting. So you couldn't smoke. I got to a level where I was allowed to go on passes and I smoked. It became like, I just started smoking. I t- I lied to people about like, yeah, you can smoke there. <laughs> Give me a cigarette. <laughs> well, one weekend I went out and I couldn't get any cigarettes for some reason. Um, I wasn't, I was with my sister and she doesn't smoke. And I come back to the House of Hope and they're like, Miss Lund, we need you to pee on this. They now do nicotine tests. Oh yeah, they
1: do first. make those. Yep.
2: <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. And I just happened to not smoke that weekend. And so I got past it. And I was moving forward with my program and I got honest with myself in there. And I'm like, hey, you guys are telling me I can't have a relationship with my mom. I'm going to have a relationship with my mom. What I need you to teach me is how I do that in a healthy way. I need you to teach me boundaries with people. I didn't know what that looked like. I need you to teach me how to hold other people accountable around me. So I went in there and I told them everything that I thought I needed and I got a boundary book that was 138 pages long to work through. <laughs> Tons of work on relationships. I went in there and I, I created my own service plan, what I wanted it to look like. And I had an amazing therapist when I was there. And I got into doing EMDR therapy. Changed my life. Why don't you explain just maybe like a couple sentences.
1: What is EMDR and how has that helped you? So EMDR is
2: it has a definition it's like i movement yeah (laughs) dialectical (laughs) um i'm not sure but my therapist at the time her name was trish she's like my idol she introduced it to me and it's where you hold tappers in your hand and you start processing different thoughts and emotions and childhood traumas and you just start talking i don't i can't explain it or exactly what i remembered or but i did quite a few sessions of that and come to find out. She's telling me that after she's like, you're talking about an instance when you were younger. And it was the day my dad passed away. My mom had went to one of her friend's house. I believe it was my sister's dad. I think she was cheating on my, my dad with my sister's dad, but I remember him locking me outside the house and sitting on the porch and I was peeing my pants. And for some reason that had a big effect on me. I didn't know I needed to process that stuff. And she said, after I processed it, that my whole body just went like a sense of relief. Like my whole outlook changed after that. I don't know why or how, or it's just this amazing thing that happens in therapy. So I remember doing that and continued meeting with her and just working on different things and just feeling the sense of relief. And then I went and met with her and I was like, I need to call my mom. Like, I need to talk to my mom. She's like, okay. So we call my mom and... I just started blurting out, I'm done blaming you for my addiction. I'm done giving you this power over me. I'm done covering up for you. I'm done lying for you. And I just blurted all this stuff out. And it was like my God moment, like the aha, like I can do something different. And the sense of relief that I got after that, the sleep I was able to get after that, um, it was the first time I could go to sleep without having to have music or something play in the background. And I believe it's because I was able to to be alone with my own thoughts. And I've wanted recovery ever since, more than anything. So, What would you
1: say was your moment of accountability? Because you spoke a lot in going to jail and other instances that it really didn't matter. And you weren't being accountable, but what was that moment where everything did change and you wanted to take responsibility?
2: The day I forgave my mom. The day that I was able to stop blaming her. I knew I was using her as my scapegoat. I knew it inside. I just didn't want to speak on it. Like I knew it was like keeping that secret. Like I knew that I knew better. I knew that I was making these choices. I knew that I was putting my kids in that harm. And when I was able to take that accountability for it, and it just changed. I mean, I wanted to live this different life. I I had these friends growing up, and they had these parents that showed up to their school functions, and just they always showed up. (laughs) And I never thought, I'm like, they must be using drugs, because people don't just show up unless they're using drugs. So I didn't know anything different. And so when I let go of that blame against my mom, I decided to show up for myself. Like I get to show up for my kids without using drugs or I don't know. It just changed that day. I can't, it's, it's hard to grasp. It's hard to say. I'm not sure exactly, but that's the day.
0: That's uh, what I would refer to as the pre Frontal cortex regaining control over the midbrain
2: i know all about the midbrain from
0: treatment
1: (laughs) and usually you tell me i'm the nerdy one but who's look at who's
2: dropping all the nerdy things right there i
0: had to read the cue card to get that
2: i know all about the frontal cortex now in my brain
0: (laughs) yeah that's been was a big piece of my treatment as well was learning about midbrain prefrontal cortex neural pathways and uh, several other big words that I can't remember right, now. like the definition of EMDR. I don't need that. I knew that yesterday.
1: I preach it all the time. <laughs> I know it's basically the rapid eye movement treatment, mm-hmm. but it has. Yeah,
2: I, I, I can't remember it either. It's, but that's okay.
0: Eye movement did real good.
2: <laughs> it's an amazing therapy. I always. I don't know exactly what it is about it, and afterwards you are completely exhausted, but it does something.
1: I've heard it work wonders for. Not just people in recovery, but dealing with trauma in general and other issues. It works really well for some people. And I think it's a great option um, for those that want to go down that path.
0: And yeah, people that I know who've been through it, I mean, with my own experiences, it's one it's 100% been beneficial. I'm sure there there are others that it's maybe not worked, but... Everybody that I've ever heard talk about it has nothing but great things to say about it. So,
2: yeah, I definitely recommend it. I
1: think that's the beauty of recovery in general is some things work for some people and some things don't. And I think finding what is part of your self care, aftercare program, and what really resonates mm-hmm. with you and working that. So, going back to your second experience in rehab, now you've really found yourself it sounds like
2: now I did, where where did you go and how did you grow from there i definitely found myself and i remember going in there and telling them i need to know what i'm going to do when i get out of here because i can do treatment really good like i'm i'm a treatment person i have accountability for the first time in my life i have someone to answer to i have people asking me questions for the first time questioning my motives i have this I want to call her my mentor, but her name's Lori Weaver, and she works there. And she told me, she's like, you're a master manipulator, Heidi. And I'm like, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? And she's like, you are. You're so good, you don't even know you're doing it. And she said, if you could take those skills and manipulate for the good, she's like, you're going to change the world. I believe that.
1: because I think I said that to you when you were in rehab, Chris, (laughs) is use your powers for good
0: (laughs) i was i and i feel that everybody who is is in addiction manipulates but some of us are better at it than others it's second nature
2: it was my whole life i didn't know i'm like and i took it personal when she told me i was a manipulator so i'm going home i'm like i can't believe she called me a manipulator i'm like she doesn't even know that's not me and then i start looking into it some more and she's like you're a groomer too and i'm like what do you mean She's like, you always tell me my dress is nice. I'm like, well, your dress is nice. She's like, but then you follow it by asking me something. Oh, so it's the compliment with the ask yeah. for yourself. Mm-hmm. So It's
0: the Novocaine before the drill.
2: Yeah. And I didn't pay attention to that stuff. And then they told me I had to write it down for a week how many times I groomed or manipulated. Oh, wow. That's that's
1: really a lot of self-awareness for that time. So Lots. did you carry a notebook around wherever I you... I had to. Um, and then
2: they would write me awarenesses on things I... Awarenesses. Sometimes I would do it. And I'm like, I didn't even do it. I, but I did do it. So after I got a done, with, done with that awareness and holding myself accountable for everything, it was easy. Like, I wasn't ashamed of holding myself accountable. And I'm going to hold you accountable too because what your actions affect me. And if I hold you accountable, I'm holding myself accountable and it, and I'm holding them accountable because I want them to make it too. And so she told me, she's like, you're going to keep yourself safe. People aren't going to come to you with all the drama. If you hold them accountable or you speak up for yourself and set those boundaries, people aren't going to come for you to get high. When you get out of here, they're going to come to you for something different if they want to heal the, hear the real, because I've always been very blunt, outspoken. I'm key for speaking before I think. I still do it. <laughs> and so I I really looked at it, I really paid attention to it, and so the last three months of my treatment over there, I, was, I wanted all the feedback. I worked on holding people accountable. I worked on, people. it was okay that people didn't like me. I worked on being real with myself, not wearing makeup, um, not having the nicest clothes. People get to see the real me. I'm not hiding behind something. But then the reality set in is it's time to leave house of hope. And you start looking for a place. They have you save up a little money in there because you're getting financial aid for you. Save up a little money and I'm going out to all these places trying to find someone to rent to me and nobody will rent to me. My background, um, I had no employment. I didn't have jobs to show that I I can even work. So nobody would rent me. And then one of my case managers there, they're like, have you ever heard of LifeStart? And I'm like, what, another program? And she talked to me about it a little bit. And I was like, holy crap, there's a program like this. And I remember going there and meeting with the lady. And they do an orientation for you. And they ask you different questions. Well, why do you want to be here? And I'm like, well, because it's cheap rent. And the lady's like, well, you're not going to make it. And when anyone tells me now that if I'm not going to make it, it's like, bet your ass (laughs) Um, So explain
1: for people that aren't as familiar with the Family Support Center and the Life Start Village program,
2: what does that offer and what does that entail? So Life Start Village is a self-sufficiency program for single parents. Um, When I went there with my children, they only accepted single moms. They had to have some form of income coming in. And they had to want to better their life. They told me, "You do nightly chores in the house. Um, you have a cook night where you cook for the rest of the um, people in your house, and then every other night there's a meal made for you." And I was like, "I don't cook." <laughs> um, <laughs> and the lady's like, "You're gonna learn." But I got this when I went there, and they showed me the apartment. It came fully furnished. I got it. They have three bedroom apartments, and they have two bedroom. Well, they're units. And it was pretty big. It wasn't like a a little hole in the wall. It was very nice. My kids had their own room. I was like, this is amazing. Um, and they ended up accepting me to go to that program. And I remember when I got out of treatment, I was so scared to leave. Because I knew I wanted sobriety. And I knew I wanted my kids something different. I wanted them to have a life that they deserved. Something that... I didn't have, I went to many different schools and so I had all these plans written down. I'm like, I want my kid to stay in the same school for at least three years. And so I'd have these different goals. And so I went there and we had our two black garbage bags from House of Hope because you share a room there with your kids. And so we moved into Life Start with just those two blacks and everything was there for us down to the bedding on our beds. Um, we had dishes in our cupboards. We had towels, toilet paper had everything that we needed to make it and my kids I remember going in there and they were so excited to have their own room ecstatic I was sad because I'm so used to being with them so I took a couple of the twin beds that were in there and made it one big king size bed and I'm like we're all sleeping in here (laughs) (laughs) and I got lucky because someone left a tv there and LifeStar doesn't provide you tvs but someone left theirs in my unit so I thought it was super cool. I'm like, we even got a TV and it's the old school, big box TVs. <laughs> yep, I and I'm... I know why they didn't take it because you can't carry it down the stairs because it's so oh heavy. heavy yep. <laughs> um, and so we got that TV and immediately I was like, I have someone to be accountable to. I can make this work. So we stayed in phase one for about 13 months. Um, they make you, they require you to do a parenting class a life focus class, and then a finance class. I love structure. Structure works for me. So after being there for a while, I started looking for a job because they require you to start working. And I'm going out there, and I'm just hitting dead-end doors because of my background, my lack of work experience, how to build a resume (laughs) Um, when you've never had a job. It's always a tough one. How old were you at this time? 25 I think I'm 36 (laughs) somewhere around there 27 because I've been sober for going on eight years and I'm 36 so somewhere about 29 28 but I go there I had worked a couple jobs I worked at a tanning salon for a few months I worked at a daycare that my aunt ran but nothing no job experience so I found this job listing at DWS and it was for Meowzer Pet Salon. And I'm like, people are going to make fun of me. Meowzer Pet Salon. I never had pets. But I went in there and I got lost that day. I was on the bus and it was ninety-something degrees. I was sweating. I walked in there and I'm like, listen, I just need someone to give me a chance. I'm in recovery. Of course, I started crying because I discovered all my emotions. <laughs> but I walked in there. and I'm like, I just need someone to give me a chance. I'm like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I just need a job. And she's like, you can start tomorrow. She's like, my husband's in recovery. And to see you come and admit that you're in recovery so easily and watching him fight for it for so long. She's like, come in tomorrow. And I remember going in there and going back home first. I'm like, I got a job at Meow's or Pet Salon. <laughs> Everyone's like, Meow's or Pet Salon. I was so grateful for that job. And I went in there every day. And busted my butt because I was so appreciative of it. I was the first one to get there, last one to leave, and it was not a pretty job. I mean, I cleaned cat shit up for a living for a while. Um, sorry.
1: One well, and animals aren't always like ecstatic to go to the groomers. Usually they're shaken and mad and barking and We <laughs> did dogs there too. She
2: had seventeen cat house cats in the building that lived there. Oh, wow. Were these the feral cats? Mm -hmm. And she does boarding there. And I experienced this relationship with animals that I never had. I think working there made me a better person, more compassionate. I ended up leaving there with a couple animals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I worked there for about three years. Um, She became one of my biggest supporters. She's an active member in Al-Anon. And different things because of her struggle, her husband's struggles, and I was always in there talking about my recovery. I'd be like, "Today," or I'd in there reading my meditation books in the morning, and she really appreciated that about me. And this is what she told me after: <laughs> um, she helped me ended up getting my driver's license. She gave me the money. To, well, let's back up a little. Bit. I was driving a car to work, and it wasn't licensed. It wasn't registered. It didn't have insurance and I didn't have a license. And she's like, hey, I need you to go to run to the store. Take my truck. And I'm like, I don't even have a license. And she's like, you don't have a license? And I'm like, no. She's like, what's stopping you from getting your license? I'm like, I don't know. Um, The court took it six years before that. I never went to court after that. She's like, well, you need to call. And I ended up having to pay $800 to get my license back and she gave me the money. She was like, you need a license. And she paid for it up front, and she just took a little bit out of my check each. Well, I would tell her in advance if I could do it or not. And I got my license. And then my first set of taxes, I was going to purchase a car, and they took them. Because I owed for being in jail. They charge you. <laughs> so then I waited till the next year, and I had a little bit of money saved. And she went down to help me get a car, and she paid for the other half of it. And I stayed working there. And just, I would go and speak about my journey. Everyone always told me, like, if you put your recovery first and you work on your sobriety every single day and make, and chase that sobriety like you did your your drugs, you're going to make it. So I got into AA really big when I got out because they require you to do meetings when you're in day treatment. And then I I got a sponsor and I started working the steps when I was working and building my support up, and I got in, I think it was my old DCFS worker, somebody asked me to speak on a panel about the system, and what they're doing right, and what they're doing wrong, and I remember going out there, and being the blunt person that I am, <laughs> <laughs> I told them exactly what I thought, and I just kept speaking at different events like that, and someone asked me, they're like, you know what, you would be, ma- make a great family support person to work with different people in the system. And so I applied for a job and it's called a family resource facilitator through Salt Lake County. And I was scared to death and it made a really good money. And I'm like, I don't deserve that money. Just a lot of self doubt. My sister filled out the application for me um, and they ended up calling me and I went in for my first real interview I've ever had and I bawled my eyes out in that interview because that's what I do. <laughs> and they gave me the job. And then I, told, I even told them my background in there. And so they're like, okay. Well, after I accepted the position and I'm like, well, I need to give my other boss some time. They called me a week later saying, hey, your background didn't pass. And it, de- it devastated me because I was like my first hopes. And at the bottom of the paper, they sent me and they're like, if you wanted to appeal this decision, contact these people. And I appealed it. Good. Good. And I appealed you. it again. <laughs> and so they wanted me to write down my whole background, my whole life on paper on each charge that they had. And they staffed it, and I ended up getting approved for the position. And that was while I was at Life Start. And after getting approved for that position, I was able to make more money to move to their phase two program of Life Start. And phase two is your own apartment you they have units that they own and then they have units that have project based vouchers attached to them and so I applied for the housing project based voucher and I got it and I was in shock and then they sent me a bill saying oh well you owe housing $1,200 before you can move out here Oh, (laughs) surprise (laughs) (laughs) that's your past aren't you so I ended up I had a really good friend that I kept with me in treatment and she gave me the money for it and it's crazy because people for once trusted me. She gave me the money like that. She didn't have to think twice about it. She's like, here's the money. I'm like, well, I don't know when I'm going to pay you back. I don't know. She's like, you'll pay me back. That's all I know. I just know you pay me back. And I ended up moving to phase two of their program. And I continued to work really hard. And I got this job with the county. And for once, I got paid because I was a drug addict. I got to use my story to help other people, to advocate for them to help them with their mental health stuff. I was getting them into treatment. That job changed my life. I learned how to speak without blaming, I guess, the system, um, and realized that they were there to support people. I got offered a position with DCFS doing my same job. So I was on a grant, but I was stationed at DCFS now. And I was at that same DCFS office that once took my kids. And if they say God's not real, <laughs> I don't know what is. How did it feel
1: to see things from the other side now at that office when before, you know, that was you dealing with them removing your kids from custody and so on? Was it different?
2: Yeah, they didn't they didn't want to take your kids. They don't want to go remove a child out of a situation like that. It is hard work, and when they do have to do it, the whole office there sets it's a tone. Everyone's sad. And what they have to do before they go and do that is a lot of work. And in the using community, everyone's like they get $500 every time they take a kid. <laughs> and you start believing that. So cuz you you don't want to take accountability for your own actions. But the people I met there and that supported me and it was amazing. Like I had my own office. I thought it was way cool. I got paid to have a day off. I remember going back to the village and I'm like, they're paying me for not working right now. (laughs) She's like, it's a holiday. I'm like, yeah, but they're paying me not to go to work. (laughs) Um, Amazing. So it was the first time I experienced just being an adult. And I ended up getting raises and raises there and just different awards. I just was very passionate about my job and I made too much money to be on housing. For the first time in my life, I was able to be self-sufficient. How did that feel? Better than any drug. I didn't know anything different. Yeah, my mom sold drugs, and, but we still depended on that. Like, I was scared to death so excited that I'm do I'm taking care of my kids by myself. I wasn't getting child support. I didn't get food stamps anymore. Nobody was helping me pay my rent. I had a car and my kids were okay. Like my kids were happy. They're still in the same school. They're getting good grades. And then that's what I started getting high off of is that feeling. Like I can do things like I can make it. I can do hard things. I want people to know that they can make it. Maybe if someone tells them that they don't have to be miserable, maybe if they, someone tells them, hey, you don't have to get high before you get in the shower <laughs> or to get in the shower to get high. My kids stopped celebrating the 15th of each month. They used to celebrate that because that's the day we got food stamps. I wanted just so much more all around. I wanted people to know that they could just do it. Like You don't have to be miserable. You don't have to chase something every day. And look, I can get a job and I'm a felon. (laughs) I got a good job. (laughs) I think the nice thing is
1: felon doesn't define you. That's not who you are. Yeah, you've had felonies on your criminal record, but you've moved past
2: from that. How is life for you now? Well, I wake up every day happy. Yeah, we have struggles, me and my kids, but we are genuinely happy and i didn't know that you could be like this or feel like this my kids are, i have really good kids and they do amazing in school um they're very polite they understand addiction they they celebrate my sobriety birthday more than they do my real birthday um i got a phone call or i was at parent teacher conference um a few years back and My daughter was in elementary and the teacher's like, I just wanted you to know that your daughter brought your sobriety token to show and tell. And she was so proud of that token. And she's like, I've experienced a lot of things at show and tell, but I've never seen a kid bring in their mom's sobriety token. And I just started bawling my eyes out and very embarrassed at the same time. (laughs) But that feeling was Unbelievable. So I kept, I've always really open with my kids about my addiction, about addiction in general, um, and not ever shaming it. People just make different choices and they don't mean to make those choices sometimes. And I'm very open about how powerful the drugs are and about our chemical makeup. Since my mom was an addict and your dad's mom's an addict, like you are predisposed to this already. If you try it, you're probably going to like it. I'm very open about any of it. I don't hide any of it from anyone or them. I want them to ask questions about it. And I want them to have their own beliefs with it too.
0: Can I ask you, um, you know, how your relationship is now with your mother and how she's doing?
2: So when the boundaries looked like when I left house of hope with my mom was, well, after talking to her, I'm like, when you come to my house, you can never bring your person to my house because I know you're going to have drugs in that purse and my mind's automatically going to take me to that purse. So you can't bring your purse into my house. I will never be left alone with you. I will not go to your house. I had very strict, strict boundaries. And while I was at phase one of life start is you can't have people in your house. So it helped me hold that boundary. You have to be accountable there. You have to be there. You have a chore to do at night. So I needed to be home every night. You had to cook dinner. My kid got on a regular schedule with cooking, eating dinner. And then that came so routine for me that the boundaries just fell into place after that. I didn't need my mom to save me with my kids. I had other women there that would help me. Like if I was going to work late, one of those women would go pick up my kid from school to make sure that they got home safe. It's the program just meets you where you're, you're at. If you're honest and you go there because you want something different, then the program's cake. It's like everything comes so naturally. The holidays... They taught me how to celebrate holidays. Like I'm going to go to a wreath making. Now I have a wreath on my door. Okay. Wreath making (laughs) class that I've never even experienced in my life. I thought people in movies had wreaths on their door. It was fancy. Um, I have a wreath on my door. Um, Just simple things about it. Like they taught me how to cook dinner. They, I had to make a balanced meal once a week. Every time I'd go into case management, they'd ask me how much sobriety I had. And I loved saying how much sobriety I had. When I think of the village, it's just like this whole other place that it's hard to explain unless you go there. There's a whole other feel to it when you pull in there. And the things that you see come out of there is absolutely amazing.
0: Well, You have a very powerful story, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, I think it's a, a great message of hope. So, Congratulations on, on being where you're at.
2: I'm now the director of that program. That I think I is
1: amazing is that you've gone from client to director with your experience.
2: Yeah. I, uh, when I found out that they were looking for a new director of the village, I was like, this is my calling. I'm, I wonder if they'll hire me. And I looked on their website and it's like, college education or equivalent and I'm like, I definitely got equivalent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I can do this. A
0: master's in equivalency. <laughs>
2: exactly. And I start calling, she's my best friend, Mandy. And I'm like, I think I can do this. And she's like, I'm reading the qualifications to her. And she's like, I think you can do it, too. And I'm like, I filled out a resume in like seven minutes. And I sent it in. And I got an email back two days later saying that they denied me. Oh, so I processed that. I was like, they didn't even give me a chance. And um, I got a phone call that Tuesday from another lady that works there. And she's like, hey, didn't you turn your resume in? I'm like, yeah, I got denied. I've been working on coping through that. <laughs> and she's laughing. She's like, they never received it. I'm like, well, they sent me the denial. And she's like, well, can you send another one over real quick? And so I sent it to her and the resume was not good. I, I, basically, I turned that resume in just to say that I tried I didn't look into it. I didn't. It's hard to make a resume when you don't have an education because you, you feel like you're less than automatically in my eyes, but I turned it in and she, I sent it to her and I got a phone call the next day asking me to come in for an interview. And I was freaking out. I'm like, I'm not, can I do it? Can I not do it? And I go into that interview and, before I do anything, any events like that, I always say a little prayer. I'm always in my car talking to God numerous times a day. And I, I walk in there and it just flowed. I was just myself, um, And I got another call back asking me to come into a second interview. And I was like, holy crap, this might really be happening. And I got a call back a few days later and they offered me the job. It's crazy to think how if you just keep doing the right thing that amazing things happen. Like all I have to do for today is stay sober and something amazing is going to fall in my lap next. Sobriety has been kind of easy for me on occasion because I just want it so bad. And I get these amazing things that happen because I'm sober. And if I'm not working my program or if I'm making bad choices, I start dating someone that I know I shouldn't. God has a funny way of showing up in my life. Um, I get rock chips in my window. I'm dead set on this. <laughs> when I know I'm messing up, I always I get rock chips nonstop. I've associated that with my go- with God. He's just warning me to pull it together. And I know, so I'll pull it together, and just amazing, it just starts lining up. And I know that as long as I'm working a program and meet with my sponsor, going to meetings and working my recovery, that I'm kind of unstoppable.
0: Sounds to me like you'll know when the right one comes along when you meet him at Techniglass getting your rock chips repaired.
2: <laughs> I just get new cars. <laughs> Maybe that's where I should go. I, keep, I have one right now. I've, the relationship thing I've struggled with in sobriety and it's, I'm still working on it. I'm not sure what's behind it. It's still something that I've been yet to figure out why I avoid so much
1: relationships are hard in general I think just finding someone you gel with making sure you're on the same page have the same intentions it's a
2: challenge in general well every time you go on a date everyone's like do you want to go to the bar oh well, yeah no. that's um, <laughs> do we want to get into that story right away or...
0: <laughs> the bar are you a lawyer <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story with us it's, it's very powerful and we just appreciate all you're doing now and wish you the best with thank your you kids. so
0: much you are an impressive human being I told you you.
1: so so this is the first time Chris (laughs) has met you and so I had to say Heidi's amazing I'm so excited for you to meet her and hear her story in person this is the first time I've did a podcast so there's a first for everything
0: (laughs) I think just about everybody we've had on here has been their first time right
2: yeah I think so I was telling my daughter, and she's like, so you're going to be on the news? I'm like, no, it's not that. I don't even have to dress up. (laughs) We're not as cool as the news.
1: (laughs) A little bit more relaxed. (laughs) Well, I think on to one of our favorite moments of the show. And I I know what this song is, but Chris doesn't. And I'm excited for you,
2: Heidi, to tell Mm -hmm. us about this song, what it means to you. So... Tom Petty is one of my favorite artists. I remember hmm. growing up to listening to him as a kid in the car. I, When I think of him, I think of joy and fun moments with my mom. And his song, Free Fallen, has stuck with me in my sobriety. Whenever I'm stressed out, I'm in the car and it's up full blast and I'm singing at the top of my lungs. And I have that sense of just like, ah, this is my jam. Like, and it takes it away. I could listen to him. My kids hate it, but I love it. But yeah, definitely free fallen by Tom Petty.
0: The panel is unanimous it's accepted.
2: It, it's accepted. We love <laughs> As Tom, you can Tom Petty see by the wall. Yeah. When he, I walked in here, I'm like, it's a God thing.
1: Heidi <laughs> is sitting by the Tom Petty poster. So. He is
0: also my favorite. Yeah, I love Tom Petty. And,
1: and when we got married, what did we do that night?
0: We went and saw Tom Petty. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> see, I need that in my life. Why can't I? <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me.